0: you're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, good morning, guys. It's great to be with you um, back on Zoom. And it's great to see all of you here. So thanks for, uh, thanks for tuning in and being here with us this morning. Uh, hope all your Christmas Christmases uh, were great and restful and restorative because we needed that after this year. Um, we're wrapping up our our series this week. The King has come, and uh, we're going to be talking about the return of the King. and And the point of the series is to emphasize the the kind of King that Jesus is, and the kind of kingdom that He wants to establish in his world that he is Lord of, and it is a kingdom that will display the power of compassionate servanthood. That is what Jesus revealed to us when he was sent and became part of us joining his divinity with our humanity in in just an incredibly mysterious union that we celebrated this last week. He came to be a model of true humanity, becoming what we are in order to show us what we were always meant to be. Uh, and it's important to think about the fact that he will be returning to us, um, especially at the end of this year, this year that was so hard on so many of us. Um, it was a tough year for me, as I'm sure it was for so many of you. I mean, in many ways, it was a discouraging year. And in many ways, it was a frustrating year. I mean, there's, there were glimpses of hope, and certainly it wasn't all bad. But Um, When I look back on 2020, a lot of what I see is just a string of very vivid and sometimes brutal reminders that things on Earth, and especially in our American corner of the Earth, are not the way they're supposed to be. They're not the way they're supposed to be. Uh, We've seen disease and death on a historic scale. Um, one of the images I will not forget from this year is the New York Times cover um, when we crossed the 100,000 deaths mark because of COVID-19. And now that, that number has, has tripled. Um, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And another image that I, that I won't forget from this year are, are images of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and others, images of, of racism and images of state police violence against peaceful protesters. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Um, I look back on this year and I think about how hard it was to navigate this year with unreliable national leadership. And that's all I'll say about it because it's not a partisan thing. It's everybody, but that made things difficult for us this year. Um, One thing that was tough for me this year was watching uh, the church in America lose some moral credibility. In our culture, Um, the Barna Research Group put out a study, or they reported the findings of a study just a couple months ago in September. And what they found is that over the course of the last year, um, white evangelical Christians, by our own admission, uh, have become more ambivalent toward racial injustice over the last year. And among all Christians, so not just white evangelical Christians, but among all practicing Christians in America. One in five now believe that racial injustice is not a problem at all. Not a problem at all. Um, And that's costing us. That's costing the reputation of Christ. It's costing the reputation of the church. It's hurting his mission. That's not the way it's supposed to be. And on top of all those things that are sort of the, the ambient frustrations, each of us has had to deal with the ways that 2020 has touched our lives personally and individually. Um, Many of us know people who got sick. Some of us know people who passed away. Some of us lost a job. Some of us had to try and find a job. Um, It's been difficult for all of us and all of us have been confronted in some way this year uh, with the reality of living in a broken world. And we've been confronted with that reality in ways that maybe we haven't been confronted with it before. And so I think it's fitting that we're wrapping up our series today and talking about the return of Jesus. Because ever since the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, um, his followers within the various traditions of Christianity have found a common hope in his promise that he will return to the world um, in power to establish his rule on the earth and to put an end to evil for good. I want to just read to you three quick sources from Christian history. The first is the Nicene Creed. So this is 320 AD, one of the foundational statements of Christian uh, belief and commitment. So here's what the Nicene Creed says about the return of Christ. He is to come with the same body, that is his physical human body, he is to come with the same body and with the glory of the Father to judge the living and the dead of his kingdom. There will be no end. And here's St. Cyprian a hundred years before that, in the early 200s. He says, Let us always, with solicitude and caution, wait for the sudden coming of the Lord, that when he shall knock, our faith may be on the watch and receive from the Lord the reward for our vigilance. If these commands be observed and these warnings and precepts are kept, we cannot be overtaken in slumber by the deceit of the devil. But we shall reign with Christ in his kingdom as servants that watch. And then if we go back even further to the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, he probably wrote this around uh, the year A.D. 60. He says this, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring all things under his control will transform our lowly bodies to be like his heavenly body. That is a a common hope among followers of Jesus, that he is returning to us, that he will come again. He will establish his kingdom. Uh, And so I want to discuss just a little bit this morning. We're going to talk just briefly about some of the things that will happen when Jesus returns. Um, Depending on your church background, the idea of hearing a sermon about the return of Christ may be kind of triggering for you. I just want to let you know there won't be any timelines or charts or calendars or predictions this morning. Um, We are going to talk just briefly about what will happen when he returns. But what I want to focus on with most of our time this morning is uh, what does it mean for us? And how, how do we live our lives in the meantime? Because one of the dominant themes of Jesus' own teaching about his return is that we won't know when it happens. We won't know when it happens. So I'm not going to waste any time trying to predict anything. I'm just going to talk about what will happen when he returns. And more importantly, in some ways, uh, how do we live in light of that imminent reality and in light of that inevitability? So here's three things, three things that will happen when Jesus returns. And I'm going to move through them quickly. If you want to dig into scripture on these later, um, you can look at Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, you can look at 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Revelation 19 through 22, both of the, the letters to the Thessalonians, um, and that will give you some good stuff to, to work with and dig into if you want to learn more about this. But Here's three things that Jesus will do when he returns. The first thing he'll do is he will usher in the fullness of his kingdom. He's going to usher in the fullness of his kingdom. And I say usher in the fullness of his kingdom because in some ways the kingdom of God has arrived. That was uh, Jesus' message. If you go and look in the Gospel of Matthew, his message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, the kingdom of heaven is right here. The kingdom of heaven has arrived. But then at the same time, we understand that the kingdom of heaven has not arrived in its fullness because uh, we've all lived through the last year. And we all know the reality of living in a broken world. And so we live in this tension between um, what theologians have called the already and the not yet. Um, But when Jesus returns, the not yet will also become already. Uh, And he will usher in the fullness of his kingdom on earth. So what that will look like is he will establish his moral order on the earth. He'll establish his moral order on the earth. And what will that look like? Jesus' moral order is love. It's compassion, it's servanthood, it's justice for everyone who is oppressed. And we spent a lot of time talking about that during this series. So if you want to hear more about the compassion of Jesus and about his servanthood and about his sort of moral order and the kind of king that he is, I just encourage you to jump back and listen to the other messages in the series if you hadn't heard them, because the, the talks that Jake and Justin have given in the series are some of the best that I've heard them do um, in the time that I've been at Midtown. So I just, I commend that to you. Um, so he'll establish his moral order on the earth. The other reason that's important to know is that we as human beings, we are meant to reign with him in his kingdom as overseers entrusted with responsibilities in the kingdom. Just two verses to, uh, to make this point, Romans eight seventeen, Paul writing, he says, now, if we are children, then we are heirs. He means children of God. We've been adopted into God's family through Christ. He says, if we're children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now, if we're co-heirs in Christ, what are we inheriting? We're inheriting the kingdom. Paul goes on, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. That phrase, share in his glory, it means co-reign with Christ in the kingdom. Paul also writes in 2 Timothy 2, if we died with him, we will also live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. So Jesus will come again to establish the fullness of his kingdom, to establish his moral order in the world, and to invite us into reigning with him if we have endured in faith at a time that he returns. The second thing that he will do when he returns is he will judge the world and he will hold the church to account for how we've represented him in the time since he ascended to heaven. So the New Testament speaks of two different judgments that will occur at this time. One, uh, we call the Great White Throne Judgment, and that is a judgment for people who haven't put their faith in Christ. And then there's a second judgment um, that in in the Bible is called the Judgment Seat of Christ, Um, and that is a judgment for believers. That's a judgment for the church. That's a judgment for people who've professed faith in Christ. Um, and it's a judgment of evaluation and basically the, there'll be a moment where each of us, uh, who've put our faith in Christ, will have to, will stand before him and he will examine our lives and nothing will be hidden from him. We'll be confronted with the reality of his righteousness and we'll see our own thoughts and words and actions and attitudes the way that he sees them. Uh, And and he will either, we will be, um, we won't be condemned. It's not that kind of judgment. It's an evaluation judgment. Um, And we'll either be rewarded for our faithfulness and obedience to him, or we'll suffer loss for disobedience to him. And then the third thing that will happen when Jesus returns um, is that he will defeat his enemies, and he'll destroy the powers of sin and death once and for all. He'll defeat his enemies and he'll destroy the powers of sin and death. So, in other words, when he returns, Jesus will be by might what he already is by right. Jesus will be by might what he already is by right. In his first coming, the first advent that we just celebrated last week, Jesus came to show us the mercy and the compassion and the patience of God. And in his second coming, Jesus will show us the power and the justice of God. And he will execute his wrath against those who stand against him. Um, And this is comforting to me. It's in the past I've sometimes found it difficult to talk about the wrath of God. Um, But after the the last year, I'm a little bit less reticent to talk about it. Um, Because God is not unaware of the evil in the world. Nothing is slipping by him. God sees everything that power hides. He sees everything that money hides. He sees everything that reputation and status hide. Uh, He sees everything that religion hides. And when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom and to execute justice for everyone who's oppressed, power and money and status and religion, they will not protect anyone from the wrath of God. And after some of the things that we've witnessed the last year, I take comfort in that. I take comfort in that. There's, now, there's much more that could be said about Christ's return uh, and in much more detail, but we can't cover it all this morning. So those are, are three things that will happen. And again, if you want to read more, Matthew 24 and 25, 1 Corinthians 15, Revelation 19 to 22. Um, what I want to do with the rest of our time today is just discuss what the return of Christ has to do with our daily lives. Um, Because we live in the tension between the already and the not yet. So what are we to do in the meantime? How should the future return of Jesus to this world affect how we live in this world now? Um, And how should we live in light of the fact that we will never stop living in the kingdom? I think that 1 John provides us an answer. so we're going to look at 1 John uh, 2, 28 through 3:3. Jimmy and Trish read some of these verses uh, before. Before we dive into it, I want to give you some context. Uh, 1 John is a letter that was written by John, one of Jesus' disciples, to a church that he was overseeing. And the reason he wrote this letter was to encourage them that their relationship with God was secure because they were concerned that maybe they didn't actually have eternal life. They needed assurance. And so John wrote to assure them that their relationship with God was secure and that instead of worrying about whether they possessed eternal life, they should be concerned with experiencing eternal life through cultivating intimacy with God by obeying his commands. Um, So for John, John's logic is that the best way to know that you possess eternal life is to experience eternal life, and the way you experience eternal life is in fellowship with God through obedience. And in the middle of the letter, John uh, invokes the return of Christ as a motivating factor for that obedience. So let's look together now at a uh, First John two twenty eight. Says now little children. Remain in him or abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So many things will happen when Jesus returns. And yet, interestingly, John doesn't mention those things. We just talked about some of them. John doesn't mention them. The most important thing to John is whether his readers will have confidence when they stand face to face with the righteous king of the universe. And the word, the word that's translated confidence has a pretty interesting sort of meaning. It, the same word is sometimes translated publicly or openly. And it, it's the kind of confidence uh, that someone has when you're, you're in a, a situation where you know that you can speak freely and be open and be unguarded. Um, it's the confidence that you would feel when you're talking with, with a close friend or with your spouse or with someone else who you trust. And you know that you can be as honest as you want, and they're not going to judge you. That's the kind of of confidence that John is talking about here. And when I learned this in my research, it immediately made me think of something that happened to me uh, a couple weeks ago. I was at a meeting of pastors, and I met a pastor there who I've been Facebook friends with for years. This is just a weird phenomenon of social media is that you can kind of meet someone online, but you haven't actually met them in real life. And so then you you kind of have a soft meeting online and then you meet them in real life. So that's what happened. And it was really awkward, uh, because we both knew each other like by reputation and through mutual connections and from social media and stuff, but neither one of us actually knew the other. And so when he introduced himself to me and we did our COVID elbow, elbow bump, um, like whatever illusion I had that I was familiar with this person completely disappear, disappeared, And I've like, I felt myself putting my guard up. Um, and that's the feeling. That's the feeling of not having the confidence to speak openly. Um, I didn't have the confidence because I was experiencing this sudden realization that like I knew things about this guy, but I didn't really know him. So that's why I didn't have confidence. And so here's what John wants you to know this morning. Uh, It's not enough to be familiar with Jesus. It's not enough to be familiar with Jesus. You've got to know him. It's not enough to just know things about him. You've got to know him. And it doesn't matter if you grew up in church or how much you know about the Bible or how much charity work you do or anything else. Um, Because none of that stuff can bail you out in the moment when you look Jesus in the eyes and you realize you only know about him. And you don't really know him. And John uses the word shame to describe the sensation of meeting Jesus and not being ready for it. And it's not a shame that Jesus will put on you uh, because Jesus doesn't put shame on his disciples. And it's not even the shame that the enemy will put on you. It's a different kind of shame. And so I wanted to just tell you a story from my life to illustrate this. Um, I went to college to study theology and ministry, and one of the classes I had to take was called family ministry. It wasn't the most fun class in our program, but I liked the professor. He and I had a relationship. So um, one of our projects in this class was that we had to put together a proposal for a family retreat and then present it to the class as though we were presenting it to the board at a church. Um, but my group was mostly upperclassmen and we were all kind of coasting through this class. Cause like I said, it wasn't one of the more fun classes in the program. So we get together to work on the project and we do the bare minimum. And we do the bare minimum on purpose. Like we agreed together to do the bare minimum and just get it over with. Um, and so we just mailed it in and then when the day came to present to the class, we were underprepared. And so we stumbled through the entire presentation and just doing that thing that you do in school when the teacher is asking you questions and you don't have answers for them and you just make stuff up on the fly and everybody can tell. I mean, we are just embarrassing ourselves. And so finally the professor just stops the presentation. He's like, okay, just stop. Like I've seen enough. Uh, And I'll never forget what he said to us next. In front of the whole class, we're all standing up in front of the room and, uh, He looks at us, and he says, this is not good work, and you all know it, Um, and I'm disappointed because each of you is gifted, and you thought that just because you're gifted, you could be unprepared and wing it and be just fine, and I expected much better, and then I swear to God, he looked me straight in the eyes, and he says, especially from this group, and I just stood there like in silence with that stupid look on my face. You know, the one that you get, like when you've just been told the truth about yourself and you can't argue with it. Um, And I felt ashamed. I felt ashamed. But I wasn't ashamed because the professor put shame on me. The professor affirmed my gifting. Um, I wasn't ashamed because I didn't meet the standard because I wasn't thinking about what the grade would be. I had already decided I didn't care about the grade when I decided to, uh, you know, mail in the project. Um, I was ashamed because of the relationship I have with this professor, because he wasn't just any professor. Um, his name is Dr. Humans, and he was he was more than a professor to me. Like he was my cohort director um, from the spring of my freshman year of college until I graduated. I had at least one class with him every single semester, and he had taken a special interest in me. He used to have me over to his house for scotch and cigars, and we'd talk theology and faith in church and We came from different faith, like different Christian traditions. And so we would talk about it and talk about the differences between our traditions. And he showed me so much intellectual hospitality. Like he would just let me bombard him with questions. And he would put up with me when I argued with him because he knew that argumentation was kind of how I learned. Um, And beyond that, he was a spiritual support for me. I mean, he encouraged me and counseled me and prayed with me. So I admired him so much. And I was like so grateful for his presence in my life. And then in this moment, when I was supposed to stand face to face with him and show him what I'd done with his investment in me, I showed up with like a thrown together half you know what project and it was one of the worst experiences of my college years. And if you knew me in college, you would know that that's that's really saying something. Um, But that's the shame that this verse is talking about. It's the shame that you feel when you know that your actions um, are not in harmony with the way that you actually feel towards the person. Uh, It's not the shame that tells you lies about yourself. It's not the shame of condemnation. because remember, John is is writing to believers, people who put their faith in Jesus. So we're not talking about condemnation. We're talking about the kind of shame you feel when you realize that you're like definitively on the wrong side of something and you can't make any excuses and you can't explain it away. And all you can do is just admit the truth about yourself. That's the kind of shame. And so what you need to know this morning, what John wants you to know, and and what I want you to know, what I have to remember, uh, is that we're going to meet Jesus face to face. And whether that's a positive or a negative experience uh, is up to us. We have agency in this. Uh, We have responsibility in this. And so John says the deciding factor uh, is whether we abide in Christ or not whether we remain in Christ or not. He says, abide in him so that you can be confident and not shrink away from shame when he comes. So what does it mean to abide? What does it mean to remain in Christ? We get some ideas from the following verses. So here's verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, he, Jesus, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And this phrase, born of, is really important in the writings of John. It shows up in his gospel. It shows up in his letters. Uh, Other places he talks about being born of God or born from above, uh, as Jesus puts it in chapter 3 of John's gospel. John writes in chapter 5 of this same letter uh, that whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So, of course, the operative word is believe. The operative word is belief. And belief is different than knowledge because knowing about Jesus is not belief. Um, Agreeing with Jesus is not belief. Biblically speaking, belief is the readiness to act. Uh, you, You believe something when your whole being is ready to act as if that thing were so. It's the readiness to act as if what you believe is actually true. That's belief in the New Testament sense. And so belief is what initiates this being born of God or being born from above. Um, And the birth from above is the entrance of God's nature and God's life into our own existence and reality. And so John connects this idea of being born from above or born of God with practicing righteousness. And so here's, here's the idea. The idea is that when you're born from somebody, you exhibit some of their characteristics. Like, we all have physical characteristics from our biological parents. And that's the idea. He says, you can tell whether you're born of God by just examining your own life and going, like, what what are the characteristics of my life? What are the characteristics of my character? Are they the characteristics of Jesus? Am I born of him? This isn't a way of describing salvation. It's a way of, of describing character formation. Um, And so John says, whoever practices righteousness has been born of God. So what is righteousness? Um, Jesus had a lot to say about righteousness, primarily in the Sermon on the Mount. So that's Matthew 5 through 7, if you want to look at that later. But Jesus said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is righteousness? Um, Righteousness in the teachings of Jesus is about goodness that flows from the inside out. So a righteous person is someone whose character has been transformed by the Holy Spirit so that they naturally do what is good. Um, and abiding in Christ is about spending the time in relationship with him that is necessary for that transformation to take place. So that's why John links the two, abiding in Christ and then practicing righteousness and being born of God. And we're going to get some more insight in the next three verses. I think the next three verses reveal five things to us. Um, I think they reveal five aspects of what it looks like to be a Christian who's living in light of Christ's inevitable return. So let's look at verses one through three of chapter three. John says, see how great a love the father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So from these three verses, um, to be a Christian living in light of Christ's return is to be five things. The first is that to be a Christian living in light of Christ's return is to live out of the awareness that we are greatly loved by God. It's to live out of the awareness that we are greatly loved by God. Um, the awareness that we are loved by God is, is the starting point of spiritual growth. Uh, and in order to get where you're going, you have to know where you're starting from. And so you're starting from this place. God loves you and is overflowing with affection for you. And he likes you because he created you. And he wants you to experience the pleasure of life on his terms. And if that's going to happen in each of our lives, then we have to be operating under the assumption that God loves us and that he's good. And that his intention is to provide us with good things. Because we have an enemy who would like us to believe the opposite, who would like us to believe that God is positioned um, opposing us, that he's in opposition to us. We have an enemy who would like us to believe um, that God is holding out on us, who would like us to believe that life on God's terms is not the most fulfilling way to live. And so we have to start from this place of understanding God's love for us and understanding the goodness that is his intention. Toward us. So that's the first thing. To be a Christian living in light of Christ's return is to live out of the awareness that we are greatly loved by God. Here's the second To be a Christian living in light of Christ's return is to be unrecognizable to the world. It's to be unrecognizable to the world. That's what John says in verse 1. For this reason, the reason being that we're children of God, for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. He got that straight from Jesus. And so what we are learning is that the more we take on the character of Christ, I think the less our lifestyles will make sense to those uh, who don't share our faith. And that's just the reality of our existence. Jesus told, that to, told us to expect that. Um, I think Charles Spurgeon said once that uh, if there's no visible difference between you and the world, then there's no invisible difference either. Now, I don't know if I would go that far, because um, I don't know that the Bible really allows you to paint with those kinds of absolute categories, but it's a helpful metric. Because um, I can examine my life, I can examine my heart, and I can go, what do I, what do I see here? Does my lifestyle make, make sense apart from following Christ? It's the questions we have to ask. To be a Christian living in light of Christ's return is just to be unrecognizable to the world. The third Third thing, to be a Christian living in light of Christ's return is to be on a trajectory toward Christ-likeness. It's to be on a trajectory toward Christ's likeness He says this in verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has appeared, or sorry, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. It has not appeared yet what we will be. So we see a trajectory there. We have a present, it hasn't appeared yet. And we have a future endpoint. Will be. It hasn't appeared yet. What we will be. John says this. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him, just as he is. Just as he is. I don't know if y'all happened to see the movie last year, Uncut Gems. Um, I feel weird recommending it. I like guess it's, it's rated R, so y'all have to, you know, be be careful there. Um, don't say it's because I told you to watch it. But I did see it. Um, and there's a there's an image in that movie that I think is really helpful to make this point. The movie um, is Adam Sandler plays a, a jeweler who works in New York City's diamond district, and he comes into possession of this big block of rare black opal. And the opal that he that he gets is uncut, so on the outside it just looks like any other rock, but in certain places the outer layer has sort of been chipped and cut away so that you could hold it up to the light and peek inside through one of these holes in the external layer and see as the light moves around inside, sort of see what's going on inside the gem and understand what it really is. And I think this is just a useful image to help us understand what John means. I think we are like uncut gems. Um, In fact, like we, we may look like just another rock. Uh, We may feel like just another rock, Sometimes, like, we don't all sparkle and shine the way that you expect gems to. Uh, but we're diamonds down to our core. Even though right now we're cloudy, and to the casual observer, we may not look much like a diamond, or we may not feel much like one all the time. But if you chipped a piece off of our exterior and held us up to the light and you looked inside, you would see what we really are and you would see what will be when Jesus returns. Um, Because our essential nature won't change, because if you've been born from above, your essential nature has already changed. But when Jesus returns, we'll be what we already are, but in a more complete and an even more beautiful way than ever before. It's that same sort of tension of the already and the not yet. Um, So to be a Christian living in light of Christ's return is to be on this trajectory, toward our destiny, which is to be conformed to the character of Christ. Fourth thing uh, that we learn from these verses is that to be a Christian living in light of Christ's return, anticipating his return, uh, is to have a hope that is fixed on Christ. It's to have a hope that is fixed on Christ. John says, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So it's to have a hope that is fixed on Christ. And we've talked about this a lot in our church uh, over the last year. What's the basis of your hope? What's the object of your hope? Um, because anything else you hope in will let you down. Uh, especially if it's another human being. Uh, because pinning your ultimate hope for something like joy or acceptance or fulfillment Um, on another human being is just kind of a recipe for disappointment, for one. Uh, And it's an easy way to damage relationships, for two, because it's an unfair burden to put on people. Um, Human beings cannot bear the weight of our own hope. Only Christ can do that. And so to be living in light of Christ's return is to be intentional about fixing our hope on him and not being distracted by so many things in this world that promise to bear the weight of our hope and can't fulfill that promise. can't make good on it. So the last thing, the fifth thing, uh, is connected to the previous one. But to be a follower of Jesus, living in anticipation of his return, is to be intentionally pursuing our destiny of Christ's likeness by taking initiative action towards spiritual growth. It's just occurred to me that my points are always like such long sentences. I never give them to Justin to put on the slides. (laughs) I just want to repent of that in front of everybody on Zoom today. Um, So to be be a Christian living in light of Christ's return is to be intentionally pursuing our destiny of Christ-likeness by taking initiative action towards spiritual growth. So there's a question that has kind of been hanging over this entire series. Um, we called the series, The King Has Come, and Jake gave, it, gave us, uh, he gave the series this tagline. Um, the King has come. He is not like our kings. Are we anything like him? Are we anything like him? Right after John tells us that when we see Jesus, we will be like him, he says uh, that anyone who has his hope set on Christ purifies himself. So interesting. So there's certainty in the future that we will be made like him when we see him face to face. And yet at the same time, we have an imperative to take our own responsibility for our spiritual growth. Because John says, whoever has that hope purifies himself himself. It's not so much that we are actually doing the work of purifying ourselves. The Holy Spirit does that work. Um, We purify ourselves in the sense that we take responsibility to walk with the Spirit and to stay in close relationship with God and to experience fellowship with God through obeying his commandments. That's the sense in which we purify ourselves. It's not the result of our work. It's the result of the Spirit's work but we have to participate in the Spirit's work. So that's what John means. Um, And we've established that there's this moment where it stands coming for all of us when we meet Jesus face-to-face, either because he's returned or because our mortal self has died. Um, And in that moment, four things will happen. Four things will happen. The first is that he will see you as you are. He will see you as you are. Now that's not a shocker because chances are, if you're following Jesus, you probably already believe that he sees you as you are. So that one's not, not a huge surprise. Jesus is going to see you as you are. Here's the second thing. You will see you as you are. Cause that's what happens when you have an encounter with God, you become incredibly self-aware. Um, we see it in Isaiah chapter six, when Isaiah is confronted with the glory of God, and his immediate reaction is, woe to me, I'm a sinner. He becomes aware of his own brokenness and of his own need for the mercy of God. So Jesus will see you as you are, and then you will see you as you are. And then a turn will happen. And then you will see him as he is. And I th- sometimes I wonder if we can only see Jesus as he is once we've really seen ourselves as we are. Because when we see the, the fullness of our need, then we can really experience the fullness of his grace and the fullness of his mercy. I think that, that our experience of the mercy of God is correlated to our own awareness of our need for it. And so as my awareness of my need for the mercy and grace of God grows, my experience and my joy and my pleasure in receiving it can also grow. So that will happen. You will see him as he is. And then John says, you will be made like him. I think it has to go in that order. Uh, and I think it's because it goes in that order that we can be hopeful in anticipating that moment. Um, Cause in fact, like, here's how good God is. Even those who show up to that moment unprepared and unable to have confidence and shrinking away in shame, can have hope in that moment because that moment ends with being made like him. But even better than that is this incredible opportunity that you don't have to wait till that moment to become like him. I mean, that's the moment we'll be made fully like him. But you don't have to wait until that moment to become like him. You can begin to take on his character now in this life. So that's why John says everyone who has this hope that's fixed on Christ purifies himself, purifies herself, just as he is pure. That's discipleship. And again, it's not that we purify ourselves per se, but we follow Jesus, we obey his commandments, and the Holy Spirit does his work and renovates our hearts and forms the character of Christ in us. So living in light of Christ's return should motivate us to grow spiritually because we know the end. We know the end. We know our destiny as human beings is to be made like Jesus, as fully as we were meant to be, um, and then to reign with him as co-heirs with him in the kingdom. So what good does it do us now in this life to fight against that destiny? What good does it do us now to live like we aren't who we are? And what good does it do us now to live like we won't be who we will be? It doesn't, it doesn't do us any good. There's no fruit or benefit from that. And so John wants us to know the end of the story so that we can have confidence in the middle because we live in the tension between the already and the not yet. Um, but if we know the end point, then we won't become discouraged along the way. and We won't give up along the way because we have this knowledge and this confidence that God takes the ultimate responsibility for our transformation on himself at the end of all things, when Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. So, I want to leave you with an invitation and it's an invitation from God. Uh, but it comes through Bob Dylan. So it's God is inviting you and he's using the words of Bob Dylan. Cause when I think about the return of Christ, I always think about Bob Dylan's song when he returns from his album, slow train coming during his Christian period. Um, or maybe depending on where you're at theologically, you wouldn't say Christian period after he just, beca- after he became a Christian, Um, But when Bob Dylan was writing songs about Jesus, he wrote this incredible song called When He Returns. And I heard this first song, um, I heard it for the first time years ago. And at the time, I was in a really desperate place spiritually. And God used these words to just give me like a Pulp Fiction style adrenaline shot to the heart of hope. Um, And so I want to share them with you. And I'd invite you actually just to close your eyes, um, because I'll just read these words from from this song and then we'll pray and then we'll take communion together. So here's God's invitation to you in light of the inevitability of Jesus return. According to Bob Dylan, surrender your crown on this blood stained ground and take off your mask. He sees your deeds and he knows your needs even before you ask How long will you falsify and deny what is real? How long will you hate yourself for the weakness you conceal? Of every earthly plan that is known to man, he is unconcerned. He's got plans of his own to set up his throne when he returns. And Lord Jesus, that is our prayer. That you would come quickly and set up your throne, establish the fullness of your kingdom in our midst, and come to live with us again. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at MidtownAustin.org.